The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Navigating the New Era of Molecularly Defined Care in Alzheimer's Disease, Applying Nuclear Medicine to Quantify Neuropathology and Improve Diagnostic Accuracy in the Earliest Stages of the AD Continuum. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NEF860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Um, thanks for coming in this uh, early for this uh, discussion. We have some people coming in, but we're going to get started uh, for everybody who's online. Again, so uh, the, the topic today is navigating the new era of molecular divine care in Alzheimer's disease, applying nuclear medicine to quantify neuropathology and improve diagnostic accuracy in the earliest stages of the Alzheimer's continuum. So welcome. Um, I'm Dr. Nasrallah from University of Pennsylvania. We'll be joined by Dr. Gil Rabinovich uh, virtually to present the second part of the presentation. And I'm joined on the podium here by uh, Dr. Alex uh, Jaska from um, Germany, who I will also help with the Q&A. Okay, here are our goals for today. We want to equip you with skills to help integrate PET imaging into your clinical practice to improve the early detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. We want to provide tools and knowledge needed to appropriately apply quantitative analysis to augment the visual interpretation of PET imaging. We're going to go to the first workshop now, which I will present. The title is From FTG to Amyloid and Tau PET, Imaging in Alzheimer's Disease. We have two cases to start the presentation. This is a case of a FTG PET scan presented here with six axial places. It's a patient who presented with mild dementia that had a predominant language impairment, but also some memory impairment. These symptoms presented about three years prior to this scan, and a preceding brain MRI showed just a little bit of diffuse volume loss. So take a look at this scan, see what you think about where you think abnormality may be and what the diagnosis may be. And in addition, what kind of certainty you have in that diagnosis? Are you sure of what the cause underlying this disease is? The second case is actually a set of two different amyloid PET scans. Four on the left, we go to one scan. The four images on the right go to a second scan. We're going to talk about how amyloid PET can be used to understand the etiology of neurodegeneration and how this can be used for prognosis. Alzheimer's disease is a progressive neurodegenerative dementing disease, which is characterized by usually a predominant memory impairment. There are three clinical stages, broadly speaking. The first is a preclinical stage where there may be brain changes related to the disease, including deposition of amyloid protein, but there are really no clinical symptoms. The patient is acting and functioning completely fine. In the mild cognitive impairment phase, there are some mild memory and other thinking problems that are greater than expected for the patient's age and education level. These can be detected by a physician doing cognitive testing, for example, but these symptoms do not interfere with the patient's ability to function in the world. And lastly, there's a dementia phase where Cognitive deficits interfere with the patient's functional activities. Alzheimer's disease is caused by abnormal protein deposits in the brain. One key protein is amyloid plaque, which deposits in these extracellular neuritic plaques, which you can see in this top panel surrounding some neurons. There's also soluble beta amyloid, which is unhealthy for the brain as well, and it may actually contribute more to the actual pathogenesis of disease, but we don't image that directly. Second, there are tau neurofibrillary tangles, which are intracellular inclusions of tau protein. These are, in Alzheimer's disease, a mix of three-repeat and four-repeat tau protein, which is important to note in terms of how the rate of tracers behave and interact with them. Okay, so for a long time, we've been able to use FDG-PET to understand the presence of neurodegeneration in neurodegenerative disease. You can see here on the right, a picture of a whole body PET scan and shown in the sagittal plane where you can see that even at rest, the brain has a lot of uptake of sugar, whereas the rest of the body is pretty quiet. 
So what we're doing in analyzing FTG PET is looking for areas of decreased metabolism that indicates injury to the brain no longer able to bind the FTG. And this is due to several different factors. First of all, if there's atrophy or actually loss of cell bodies, there's less demand for sugar, a decreased metabolic rate of the cells that remain present, decreased synaptic activity of the cells that remain present, and also a secondary decreased blood flow to the region, so less delivery of FTG to those regions of the brain. FTG-PET is very useful for differential diagnosis of neurodegenerative disease, where the pattern of hypometabolism across the cortex is indicative of an underlying etiology. These changes are actually very similar to what you can measure if you looked at atrophy on MRI, but they are usually easier for us to see visually. So if you don't have a computational software, you are able to make a diagnosis with FTG more easily than with MRI. FTG-PET also has a very strong negative predictive value meaning that if the scan looks normal, that indicates that there is not a substantial amount of neurodegeneration present, and that means that the patient usually will do very well over the next few years, so there's not going to be a rapid decline in their status. This slide is a summary of how we use FTG PET in differential diagnosis. So the left-hand column shows the example of a normal scan where there is high uptake throughout the gray matter structures of the cortex and the deep gray structures, and it's a little bit variable but fairly uniform across the structures. In Alzheimer's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies, there is a posterior predominant hypometabolism pattern that involves the temporal and parietal lobes. It's usually fairly symmetric, so usually both sides are affected relatively equally. One key difference between these two diagnoses is in the posterior cingulate gyrus. This is a characteristically involved region of Alzheimer's in Alzheimer's disease and characteristically spared in dementia with Lewy bodies. So you can see in dementia with Lewy bodies, this little dot of preserved activity surrounded by a sea of hypometabolism yielding what's called the cingulate island sign. Dementia with Lewy bodies also has hypometabolism involving the occipital lobe, which is not a region involved in other neurodegenerative dementias. Frontotemporal degeneration is a very nice disease in that it tells you where to look for abnormality. You can see here that there is a frontal lobe and anterior temporal lobe hypometabolism. There's two different examples here. Column on the left is one patient and the column on the right is a second patient. The column on the left shows you that this actually can often be asymmetric, most frequently involving the left side when that happens. In cases of FTD, you have preservation of posterior cerebral metabolism. Sometimes when you're analyzing FTG PET scans, it can be challenging, and it can be helpful to use automated analysis tools to give you additional information or additional look at the brains. This is one example where the patient study that you're interpreting was compared to a group of age-matched and sex-matched controls. Areas that are abnormally low in metabolism are highlighted in red in this example, and you can see in these two examples that in the case of Alzheimer's disease, there is this typical temporoparietal hypometabolism that involves the posterior cingulate gyrus and the precuneus, whereas in the case of FTLD, you have a asymmetric left frontal hypometabolism, which is again typical of that disorder. So these can be very helpful in certain cases that you find challenging. There are multiple limitations of FTG PET in assessing for neurodegenerative disease. First of all, it is challenging to use this in early disease. So when you have very little neurodegeneration, the amount of hypometabolism is very mild. Also, you're looking for an inverse signal. So instead of detecting something that is appearing for new that indicates disease, you're looking for the loss of something that has always been there, which is a little bit of a harder task for us. There are also atypical neurodegenerative diseases. So even though I've told you the typical patterns for Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases, each of these diseases can present in an unusual way that actually may even mimic one of the other diseases. So even if you do everything correctly in terms of your interpretation, you could still make the incorrect diagnosis. There are also additive effects of copathology on FTG uptake in the brain. So this is just a measure of injury to the brain. It doesn't matter what caused it. 
It's not specific for neurodegenerative disease. So any source of thing that would cause that injury, whether it be a stroke, a mass, or anything else, can result in changes in the pattern. And that they will superimpose upon each other, and it could make it difficult to understand the underlying neurodegenerative pattern if one is present. And lastly, of course, this is a measure of end-stage injury to the brain. The cells are dead. And at this point, it may be too late to intervene to restore function or change the disease course if you're detecting it already on FTG-PET. So we would like some earlier biomarkers. Let's talk about these biomarkers that let us understand the neuropathology underlying Alzheimer's disease. Kind of a summary of what we're going to show is that there are three critical biomarkers that define Alzheimer's disease. The first is amyloid, or A. The second is tau, or T. And the last is neurodegeneration, or N. There are multiple ways to measure each of these biomarkers. Amyloid and tau can both be measured by PET studies, CSF measures of proteins, or plasma measures of the same proteins. Neurodegeneration can be measured by FDG-PET, by MRI, and also by CSF or plasma measures of certain proteins. So we'll go into a little more detail about these two important biomarkers. This is a very popular slide when we're talking about Alzheimer's biomarkers. And what it does is it shows you the transition of these biomarkers. And they happen in a particular sequence over time, meaning that the first things that change is you get deposition of abnormal amyloid in the brain. This is followed by deposition of tau protein and then by neurodegeneration and then followed by the actual cognitive decline over time. So amyloid PET. Amyloid PET has been around for about 20 years. And there are three tracers that have broad clinical approval around the world, Florbetapir, Florbetaben, and Flutamatamol. We interpret them clinically as positive or negative. What we need to know is, is there amyloid present in the brain or is there no amyloid present in the brain? The three tracers generally have fairly equivalent clinical performance. In fact, Florbetapir and Florbetaben have very similar chemical structures as well. And we'll talk about how we kind of interpret those over time. This is information about how you would perform these tests clinically, taken in the product inserts for each of them. One thing I'll point out is that the manufacturers give you a very broad range of uptake time over which these tests would work. And it's fair enough for you to select whatever time there works for your clinic. But what you do want to do is you want to pick one time for your site, right? If you have people who are coming back from multiple scans, or if you want to compare quantitation methods, you want to make sure that you are picking at the same uptake time. Otherwise, you're going to start affecting your ability to detect longitudinal change, and it'll affect the actual quantitative measures you may derive. So try to pick one timing for your site. I'll go over briefly how we interpret these. These are four axial images from a negative Florbetapir scan. Now I say negative, but you can see that there's actually a lot of tracer activity on this slide, right? You can see all this dark activity. But this activity is actually present just in the white matter of the brain. And this is a known off-target binding of all of the amyloid pet tracers. What we want to know is, is there presence of cortical amyloid? And in this case, you can see that the cortex is actually negative. And the way we set ourselves up for this is we look at the cerebellum. The cerebellum is not affected, does not deposit amyloid in Alzheimer's disease. So this is a negative control region. What you do when you read these is you set the windows so that the white matter in the posterior cranial fossa are dark and the gray matter is light. And this is now appropriate for you to read the rest of the study. You look at the rest of the brain and you're gonna look for involvement of the cortex. In this case, we see this kind of jagged edge of the surface of the brain, indicating this kind of white matter skeleton of the brain and no binding present in the cortex. So this is a negative scan. This is a positive scan with the same tracer. So here you can see that instead of having that white matter skeleton, you just see this kind of smooth surface of the brain. All the brain is the same intensity, except you see, of course, that the cerebellum is still preserved, right? There is no binding in the cerebellum, even this very positive scan. One thing you should realize here is that this is about as positive as it gets, right? So the intensity of binding in the cortex does not usually exceed the binding that's in the white matter. So you'll just see this kind of uniform appearance of the entire brain in a positive scan. You do want to be careful that you are checking for the presence of atrophy because 
you can imagine that if you have sort of suckle enlargement and spacing out of the gyri, that could put gaps in between the areas of the cortex. And that would look like a negative scan if you just looked at it quickly, as opposed to understanding that it's due to the atrophy pattern instead. Here again, compared side to side, a positive scan and a negative scan. So we do have limitations in amyloid PET imaging. First of all, there's the availability issue. Even here in the United States, there is not 100% coverage of all PET facilities in this country. So there is definitely an access problems. There are also challenges with interpretation. It's particularly important near the threshold of positivity. So there is a relatively low signal to noise ratio. So you know, even again, in the most positive cases, the signal is not greater than the background uptake and the white matter. There is this diffuse white matter off-target binding, which can make it hard to distinguish exactly where your positive signal, because you are looking for, you know, binding in a structure that was just a few millimeters thick, right, the cortex. If there's motion of the patient during the PET scan, that can also make it look like a positive scan, because it'll look like it'll fill in through the cortex. Similarly, if there's a motion between the CT and the PET scan, causing attenuation correction artifacts, that could also make it look like there's positivity where there is not. And finally, whenever you have a study, there's interreader variability. And this is a study that's particularly prone to that kind of problem. You know, there is reader training to try to minimize that issue, but it's something that is persistent. As with FTG PET, sometimes it's useful to use semi-quantitative measures to assist your diagnosis. So what you can do is you can compare your study with control amyloid negative populations using voxel-based analyses. You can use a measurement called the standardized uptake value ratio, where you take SUV values from the cortex, divide them by the reference region, which is the cerebellum for amyloid PET, and use those quantified numbers. We can always also use something called centiloids, which is a unified measurement that allows you to compare directly any of the three tracers on a single unified scale. Here's another case. This is another amyloid PET scan. Again, shown with six images in the axial plane, you can see again that the cerebellum is negative and there's that white matter binding. This case is perhaps a little more tricky than the ones we saw earlier in that you know, there are some regions that look like there is not binding of amyloid. But here in the right posterior cerebrum, you might be wondering, is there some cortical binding on some of these slices here, right? If you take this and run this through and compare it to controls, some software can show you that, yes, that those areas of the brain do seem to show increased binding. This may increase your confidence in making that diagnosis. This is a positive amyloid PET scan. I'll point out again here that the cerebellum is not colored because it is the reference region. So again, it's used as comparison. This is a different piece of software, which shows kind of similar information in a different way. This software will color code different regions of the brain that are important in Alzheimer's disease based on how abnormal the score is. This again is a case that's pretty clearly positive based on your visual read, again, showing you that the computer software is agreeing with that, confirming your diagnosis. Okay, a little bit more on centiloids. So and this is a common measurement scale. You, use, you can mathematically transform your SUVR data from your own scanner and your own patients, this reference, and it allows you to directly compare Phobeta-Beer, Phobeta-Ben, and Phobeta-Metamol scans across each other. Through a lot of different research, we know that the cutoff of about 24 or 25 centiloids is the transition from negative to positive. This example here just shows you some cases that were transformed and also emphasizes that the studies that the readers had the most trouble with, here shown in green, are again right around that cutoff point. So it can be very useful in terms of helping you make a diagnosis of positive or negative. This slide is again just to emphasize that the errors that are made in diagnosis tend to be around the borderline of positivity. These are cases where there's negative amyloid PET, negative reads, amyloid PET scans, and positive reads shown in orange, shown by the centiloid values. And you can see that the ones that are on the wrong side of the line are, are right around that cutoff. And this is for all the different tracers. Okay, we'll move on to tau PET. There's one tau PET tracer that has thus far been approved, but there are several more in the works that may gain approval in the near future. Here again, we have examples of negative scans and positive scans for fluortausapir. 
Fortalsapir is able to bind Alzheimer's type aggregates and doesn't do very well in non-Alzheimer's telopathies. So some of the FTDs do have other kinds of tau that deposit, but it doesn't detect them very well, although it can be used. An example of a negative scan, the nice thing is that this tracer does not have a lot of background uptake, right? So it's pretty negative throughout the brain. That being said, there are some areas of off-target binding that are known. So Fortalsapir tends to bind to iron deposits, neuromelanin, monoamine oxidase, and choroid plexus. So keep that in mind when reading this, but again, none of these tend to occur in cortex which is, again, where you want to evaluate for the presence of abnormal tau. I'm showing you this in a very particular color scale, and what you want to do is use, is this is what's recommended by a manufacturer, is to pick a color scale that has a very sharp transition in color. You set this transition based on binding of, of course, the cerebellum, and then you will be able to interpret anything that is in the upper scale as positive, right? So here again, you're starting to see cortical binding of tracer. Now, look at a little more specific on how you're supposed to interpret these if you were to do this clinically. So once you set your color scale thresholds, you then draw a series of lines. So you draw a horizontal line kind of posterior to the deep nuclei of the midbrain, and then you draw two vertical lines kind of splitting the temporal lobes in half, and this makes four quadrants in the temporal lobes. What you're looking for is binding in the outer posterior quadrant of the temporal lobe, and I can show you here that there is on the left side clearly binding in that region, and that's indicative of a positive scan. On the right side, parting some questionable stuff up here, you might call this negative if you just saw this kind of appearance throughout on both sides. Of course, it can be more widespread through the brain, and if you see things in parietal lobe and occipital lobe, that also can be counted as positive. But if you see only binding in the anterior or medial temporal lobes, or you only see binding in the frontal lobes, you should read that as negative. Right? So those are not typical patterns of Alzheimer's disease. It should be interpreted as a negative study. Okay, let's come back to FDG-PET. How does FDG-PET fit into your diagnosis, your armamentarium in the area of amyloid and tau? FDG-PET is one of the features that can actually provide you positive information of a differential diagnosis, right? Amyloid and tau-PET tell you whether or not these proteins are present. Tau-PET does have some information about severity of disease, so the distribution and the intensity of uptake can have information about how much injury is present, whereas amyloid-PET is not very good at predicting future decline, especially when people have dementia. FDG-PET is the best imaging test to evaluate for dementia with Lewy bodies, again, because of that singular island sign and a generally a relative lack of atrophy on MRI. So it's, again, a very important test for evaluating for DLB. We're also lacking tracers that specifically target the pathologies present in FTLD and dementia with Lewy bodies. People are working on those, but they're not generally available. So, you know, again, FTG-PET can provide you information on these diagnoses. And of course, it's widely available at a relatively inexpensive test. So it can be useful to as an initial test or as problem solving in diagnosis. Okay, let's get back to the cases that I showed you at the beginning. This is that 81-year-old female patient with an FTG PET scan, a language-predominant cognitive decline. So again, if you look at these studies, you can see that there is some hypometabolism in the brain with the kind of left side a little worse than the right, and the frontal lobe being the most prominent area of abnormality. Temporal lobe's also a little abnormal. Let's put some quantification here. So we'll use run this through our analysis software, and it will kind of confirm what I just pointed out. So again, the left frontal lobe showing the most prominent hypometabolism. It also kind of says that the kind of precuneous area is a little bit affected as well. And you might wonder, is that spreading from towards the back, which can happen, or is that telling you something different? What do you think this diagnosis is? How sure are you? Let's get some more testing, perhaps. So we can get an amyloid PET scan. This is a 4-beta-bend scan in this patient. Here again, you don't see difference between the gray matter and the white matter. So this is a positive 4-beta-bend scan. Maybe you want to get a tau PET as well. Here you can see binding that's present in the posterior lateral temporal lobe, also in the parietal lobe. Now, it is more prominent in the frontal lobe, and that does match where we see our abnormality in FTG-PET. That's expected, that matching. 
is somewhat expected, but it is also present in the critical regions that I mentioned, the parietal posterior lateral temporal lobe. So this will be read as a positive tau PET study. So this patient has amyloid positivity, tau positivity, and the presence of neurodegeneration from FDG PET. So this is a fairly advanced case of Alzheimer's disease in terms of biomarkers. The second case, right? These are, again, there are two different studies. The scan on the left, hopefully when you look at this, you'll feel this is a positive scan. You'll read this as a positive scan at this point. The scan on the right looks better, right? And maybe you would read this as negative. Maybe you can add some analysis to that. So we have the surface projections from the analysis program. Again, showing you the example on the left has evidence of some binding of amyloid. And the one on the right has definitely less. And maybe this, you can consider this artifact. Usually the software will show you a little bit of things that are not regional, even when in negative cases. So what's going on here? We have a positive and negative scan. This is actually the same person. And the positive scan was acquired first. It's a patient who was treated with anti-amyloid therapy. So this is something we have never seen before these therapies are available, is a reversal of amyloid positive status, right? It always progressed from negative to positive, and people would stay that way. So this is a new development, which is very exciting. And Gil is going to talk in next session about more implications of amyloid and tau PET in clinical use. He's going to do that right now. I'm going to pick up right where Elia left off and talk about clinical applications of PET imaging in this new era of disease-modifying therapies in Alzheimer's disease. And so I'm going to start with a case vignette and use that to illustrate when you might want to use amyloid PET clinically, review appropriate use criteria that are now 10 years old, actually about to be updated, talk about the use of amyloid PET in the real world by discussing briefly a study called the IDEAS study, which maybe many of you are aware of or participated in. I'll briefly talk about how tau PET can be used clinically for diagnosis and prognosis, really exciting use of amyloid and tau PET in AD drug development, and we think very very soon now in clinical care, and then we'll revisit our case vignette. So this is a real case, a pretty typical case in my memory clinic. This is a 78-year-old woman who presented with six months of progressive cognitive complaints. Her primary complaints were around memory. She was misplacing objects, had mild difficulty recalling recent events, had twice left the stove burner on. She also had a little bit of trouble retrieving words, thinking of names of people who should be familiar, a little more trouble navigating in new environments. In general, she just felt a little bit slower when she was planning, multitasking, a little less able to concentrate. Her husband noted that she was slightly irritable, especially when he mentioned the memory problems, but really had no mood issues. She was retired and fully independent with all of her activities. Her past medical history, notable for breast cancer, which was treated with lumpectomy radiation and tamoxifen. She also had dyslipidemia, vitamin B12 deficiency, treated with simvastatin, B12, and calcium vitamin D supplementation. She did have a very significant family history of Alzheimer's disease. Her father developed dementia in his early 60s, her mother in her 90s, and her brother in his 70s, which certainly raises my antenna of concern. She was a retired social worker, a lot of education, would drink one glass of wine daily and had some remote tobacco use. So her physical exam was just notable for a little bit of hypertension. She had a normal BMI. On neurological exam, she had what I call micro neurological findings, so a little bit of slowing on finger and foot tapping, some evidence of peripheral neuropathy probably related to the B12 deficiency with decreased sensation in her feet and absent Achilles reflex and a positive romper sign. So in our clinic, we do a battery of cognitive tests and in these individuals to objectively test their memory and other cognitive domains. She scored a perfect 30 out of 30 on the mini mental state exam. On verbal memory, she was right at average, 
And on visual memory tests, she was one standard deviation below mean for age. And she was just around average on tests of language, visuospatial, and executive function. So really no objective cognitive impairment. However, this really likely represented a decline from her baseline because based on the history, she probably would have performed high above the average on many of these tasks prior to experiencing these symptoms. So this is her flare. These are axial flare images of her brain MRI. This is kind of a standard of care is to get a structural image. We're going to focus on the medial temporal lobes. I apologize. This is a neurologic orientation. So left is left, right is right. You might notice a little bit of asymmetry with less tissue in the right medial temporal lobe, perhaps a little bit of sulcal prominence in some posterior areas, particularly medially and some white matter disease. But really, I think it would be very hard, at least for me, to call any of these things clearly abnormal for age. And so at the end of a standard of care workout for memory complaints, I'm really left saying, well, you're testing normally. I'm concerned about your symptoms. Your family history puts you at higher risk, but I'm really not sure whether or not these concerns represent normal aging, increased worry, or may represent the earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease. So as you can imagine, this is not a satisfying answer for many people, especially those who are seeking an evaluation for their memory. So, of course, Alzheimer's biomarkers that we talked about can help provide more certainty to diagnosis. About 10 years ago, Keith Johnson led a group that published appropriate use criteria for amyloid PET, and a few years later, these were also published for CSF, amyloid and tau markers. The core criteria for someone who might be eligible for clinical amyloid PET is that they have to have a cognitive complaint with objectively confirmed impairment, so meeting criteria for either mild cognitive impairment or dementia, as Elia defined them. The diagnosis has to be uncertain with AD as a possibility after a comprehensive assessment by a dementia expert, and then knowledge of the biomarkers is expected to increase your diagnostic certainty and alter management. There are a few scenarios where these criteria are usually met and are probably appropriate for amyloid PET. These include persistent and progressive unexplained mild cognitive impairment, maybe like the patient that I described in my vignette, People in whom you're considering Alzheimer's disease, but they have either an atypical or mixed course, or they have a lot of comorbidities, like a lot of vascular disease, substance abuse, psychiatric disorders, and people who have an atypically early age of onset, which we define generally as symptom onset before age 65. And these individuals, diagnosis can actually be particularly challenging, and the stakes of diagnosis tend to be very high. Now, 10 years ago, we didn't have anti-amyloid therapies, but I'll add in parentheses and when the appropriate use criteria are updated very soon, anyone who's being considered for an anti-amyloid therapy would be clinically appropriate for amyloid PET. There's some areas of controversy, like people who have subjective cognitive decline, they have complaints but test normally. My patient might fit in that category. And people with clinically typical forms of Alzheimer's, so a progressive memory disorder in late life. However, with the update of the appropriate use criteria, this probably will move to the appropriate category because actually probably about 30% of people who present with a typical progressive memory predominant dementia don't have Alzheimer's but have a different pathology. And then there are cases when it's clearly inappropriate. So the amyloid PET scan shouldn't be a substitute for a clinical assessment. It shouldn't be the first test ordered. It shouldn't be ordered this time outside of research and people who are cognitively unimpaired or ordered just based on a family history, genetic risk, and certainly not for non-medical use like determining eligibility for disability or insurance. 
Now, as many of you know, access to amyloid pad has really been restricted by lack of reimbursement by third-party payers, including Medicare. In 2016, I led a group of investigators that partnered with Medicare to evaluate the clinical use of amyloid pad through coverage with evidence development in individuals with MCI or dementia who met the appropriate use criteria. We enrolled over 18,000 patients at 600 memory clinics, and these were scanned at about 350 PET facilities. And to summarize a whole lot of work in just one slide, what we found was that amyloid PET had a very significant impact on patient management. We found that changes in management occurred in over 60% of patients with MCI or dementia. This was more than double the 30% change that we were looking for. These included changes in the use of dementia medications, other medications that treat neurologic conditions, referrals for counseling, for future care. So really important changes in management that the amyloid PET scan was associated with. There was a change in diagnosis in over a third of patients, I mean, 25%. Actually, the diagnosis changed from Alzheimer's to a non-AD cause after the PET scan when the scan was negative, and then about 10% from a non-AD cause to AD when the scan was positive. Now, Medicare was also interested in longer-term health outcomes, so we looked at 12-month hospitalization rates and found a very small reduction, about 4.5% relative reduction in 12-month hospitalizations in people who were in ideas compared to a match group of Medicare beneficiaries who did not have amyloid PET. This fell short of our 10% relative reduction goal, and we found really no impact on emergency room visits and a neutral effect on overall costs. So it's unclear if these findings will change the needle in terms of Medicare reimbursement, but of course, the big changer in something I'll get to in a few slides is the emergence of anti-amyloid therapies, which completely changed the landscape in terms of clinical utility. Now, in ideas, we also have an opportunity to understand how amyloid PET might function in a real-world setting. And one of the things that our group has been very interested in is quantifying about 11,000 PET scans that were archived from the IDEAS study. We developed lab-specific pipeline to quantify these images. I won't go into the details for time, but this has been published, and you have the reference here as well as the source code for this pipeline. Basically, it enabled us to do MRI-free quantification and derive these celluloid values that Elia referred to in idea scans. And so one of the important questions that we were interested in is how did nuclear medicine or radiologists in the community read these scans and how did their local reads compare to quantification? What you see here on the right is a density plot of senoloid values from the IDEAS study. Here is this 24 senoloid threshold that Elia discussed. So you can really see a bimodal distribution with a cluster of negative scans with a mean of around zero senoloids and another cluster of positive scans with a mean of about 75 senoloids, which is just about right for MCI or early dementia. But really importantly, the local physicians, even though they had limited experience generally with reading amyloid PET, did very, very well. There was 86% 0.7% agreement between a quantitative classification, meaning a senolage value greater than 24 for a positive scan or less than 24 for a negative scan, and the local read, this translates to a Cohen's kappa of about 0.72 can see in 54.5% of cases were classified as positive both on visual read and quantification, 32% negative on both. And you can see about an equal number of scans were discordant. The visual read was negative, but the quantification was positive or vice versa. And when we look at the senoloid values, 
in concordance scans, scans that were visually and quantitatively concordant. You see, again, a very tight bimodal distribution. And the discordance scans kind of span the spectrum of senaloids, but most are clustered around this threshold so of 24. So this really reinforces what Elias says, which is borderline scans are the hardest to read visually, which is not a surprise. Taupet, as Ilya said, is actually quite specific for Alzheimer's disease neurofibrillary tangles and doesn't pick up tau in other disorders, and so it can be very useful for differential diagnosis. This is a study from Rick Ossenkoppel looking at a large multi-site international cohort of individuals who are either controls or have a variety of different dementia diagnoses. And on the x-axis, you can see the Flortalsapir SUVR values in the temporal lobe, and here's a threshold for positivity. And so what you really see here is that the scans, the tau PET scans are quantitatively positive in most people who have MCI due to Alzheimer's disease with a positive amyloid PET or dementia due to Alzheimer's, but are very rarely positive in many of these other disorders. And in fact, when they are positive, you can see that the amyloid PET scan is positive. So these individuals may have been misdiagnosed or have some Alzheimer's copathology. So the AUC of temporal lobe or tau uptake is very high, 0.95 in discriminating AD dementia from non-AD dementia with sensitivity and specificity of about 90%. The AUC is a little bit lower in separating amyloid positive MCI from non-AD conditions, and that's because there's a drop in sensitivity. So the tau PET scan is not quite as sensitive to pathology in people with MCI, but the specificity remains high. And here are data with a different tau tracer in a different cohort, giving very similar results. So very good AUC for diagnosing AD dementia from non-AD but a lower AUC, again, an amyloid-positive MCI with really, in this case, quite low sensitivity, but good specificity. So just a take-home point from this slide is that in the MCI stage, amyloid PET will probably be more sensitive for Alzheimer's pathology at the dementia stage. Amyloid PET and tau PET perform very similarly, actually. What tau PET is really good at, however, is helping with prognosis. So there really isn't a very good correlation between the amount of amyloid and prognosis in terms of future cognitive trajectories. But with tau, the more tau there is, the greater the clinical decline that we see. And I'll demonstrate that in a couple of ways. This is a study actually looking at flortalsapir performance in predicting longitudinal cognitive decline in a couple of clinical trials. So these are different cognitive or functional measures. And what you see in orange are individuals who had an advanced tau-pet AD pattern, meaning they had binding not only in the posterolateral temporal lobe, but also usually in parietal or frontal lobe. And these individuals across the different scales progressed more rapidly in terms of their cognitive decline than individuals who had a negative flortalsapir scan or had just mild AD binding pattern with that little extension into the posterolateral temporal lobes. This is a study, again, from Rick Ossenkoppel comparing the prognostic value of tau-pet, amyloid PET, and MRI in a large multi-site cohort. And what you see on the y-axis is the change in MMSE over time, and on the x-axis, the baseline temporal lobe flortalsapir, amyloid PET senaloids, or MRI cortical thickness. And so baseline tau-pet had the strongest relationship with longitudinal decline in MMSC with higher tau binding associated with more rapid decline. The R squared was about 0.35. Amyloid PET was only weakly correlated with future decline with an R squared of 0.17. And you can see that MRI was somewhere in between was an R squared of 0.24. So of all these imaging modalities, tau PET was actually the most predictive 
a future cognitive decline. Now, one area where amyloid and tau pad are going to be used or have been used is in clinical trials. They have been used to select the right patients for treatment, for example, confirming that someone has amyloid before you treat them with an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody. They've been used to select people for early intervention at very early or even preclinical stages and to confirm target engagement. This is a very famous figure with one of the early antibodies, aducanumab, showing a dose-dependent reduction from baseline with with one year of treatment with higher doses associated with more rapid clearance of amyloid. And this was confirmed in a phase three study showing that individuals who were treated with placebo had slight increases in their amyloid pads. And in two separate phase three studies, low dose in blue and high dose in purple, was associated with quite dramatic reductions in amyloid PET. Now, for a variety of reasons that I won't get into, the clinical outcomes in this study in terms of cognitive benefit were a little bit unclear. But just last year, we had a clearly positive trial of an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody called lecanemab, which clearly showed that amyloid removal was associated with a slowing of cognitive decline. The primary outcome measure in this trial was the clinical dementia rating sum of boxes, which is a zero to 18 point scale that measures cognition and function. So things that are very clinically relevant to patients. And what you can see is that individuals who were treated with lecanemab had significantly less decline, actually 27% slower decline than those who were treated with placebo. These are secondary outcomes in this phase three study that was published last year in the New England Journal. This is amyloid PET burden. So like with aducanumab, a dramatic reduction in amyloid PET with treatment compared to placebo and across different cognitive and functional scales, again, a significant slowing of decline in patients who were treated with lecanumab compared to those who were treated with placebo. The last study that I want to talk about is what I call the next generation AD clinical trial, which is a phase two study that was done with another anti-beta monoclonal called denanumab. This is an antibody that specifically targets amyloid plaques. The others target more intermediate forms of A-beta aggregates. And there were two really innovative aspects of this trial. One was that only patients who had intermediate tau pad uptake at baseline were included. So the thinking was that if an individual had very low tau pad uptake, they'd actually be unlikely to show any cognitive change over the 18 months of the trial. Whereas if people had very high tau pad uptake, removing amyloid would actually be less likely to help. So this is now an example of how we might use PET imaging for disease staging and selecting the right patients for a particular intervention like amyloid removal. The other innovative aspect was the duration of treatment was actually titrated to the PET response. So people were switched to placebo once their amyloid PET scan went from positive to negative. So now instead of thinking of treating people indefinitely with the antibodies, you're really treating to a goal of removing amyloid and then you observe the these individuals, kind of akin to induction chemotherapy. And what was found in this phase two study was that there was, again, very rapid, in fact, the most rapid clearance thus far of amyloid. This was associated with the slowing of progression of regional tau pet. So this is maybe some evidence even of disease modification and that slowing of clinical decline on this scale called the IADRS. 
And we just heard a couple of months ago through a press release that the phase three study of this antibody was also positive, hitting its clinical, its primary clinical outcome with 35% slowing of decline. We're going to hear the full data about this trial in a couple of weeks at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. So more and more, you can see new drugs entering the clinic and think about how PET might be very important for both patient selection and monitoring treatment. Okay, so let's get back to my 78-year-old female patient. Again, we had a lot of uncertainty about whether or not she had early-stage Alzheimer's. Here is the Florbetaven PET scan. So as Elia showed you, you're all now experts in reading these scans. There's no gray-white distinction anywhere. This is a clearly positive scan. The quantitative value was about 105 centiloids. And here's a tau PET scan. This is a different tracer that we haven't talked about yet called PI2620, but you can see the tau PET uptake extending into the posterolateral temporal lobe, particularly here on the right. And so this would be a positive AD pattern, but an early AD pattern. So this individual might actually be a very good candidate for anti-amyloid therapies. And so using our biomarkers, we now can diagnose mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease with biomarkers positive for amyloid tau. And I'll give a soft positive for neurodegeneration based on that MRI. Based on these results, we started denepazil. We made lifestyle changes, senior driving assessment, made sure advanced directors were in order, sent referral to the Alzheimer's Association, are currently considering treatment with an anti-A-beta monoclonal. And so just some take-home points from this presentation, amyloid and tau PET can guide AD diagnosis and care. They facilitate an early and accurate diagnosis, and tau PET in particular can be useful for prognosis as well. The IDEA study showed evidence for real-world feasibility and utility. There was a large impact on diagnosis and patient management, and very reassuringly high agreement between local visual reads and centralized quantification. And amyloid and tau PET have really had a transformative impact on AD drug development. And I think this is really a very exciting time to be in this field because we are about to see a complete paradigm shift from a current model where we provide a clinical diagnosis and symptomatic treatment with cholinesterase inhibitors to a new era where we have biomarker, assisted diagnosis, early detection, and can intervene with molecular-specific therapies. Okay, we're going to move on to the question and answer session. Uh, so Alex will have, has some questions that have, been, that have been submitted. You probably still have an opportunity if you have any more to add them in um, into that pile, and we can try to get to as many as we can. Thank you. So first of all, thanks to the two distinguished speakers for presenting such a really nice overview um, over the, the value um, of PET imaging tools, um, also with regard to, to novel therapies. So we collected a few questions. I will try to, to summarize them a little bit. Um, what repeatedly has been asked here is about um, the optimal sequence of the biomarkers um, in, in Alzheimer's disease. Um, I may try to um, to summarize our current knowledge here, and you may want to correct me if I if I get that wrong. Um, there has been the, the old amyloid hypothesis, which basically says that amyloid comes first, um, followed by tau pathology in the brain, and then followed by by neurodegeneration. If we stick to that concept. Um, our biomarkers, imaging biomarkers, would be applied in the same order, meaning amyloid imaging would be the first test turning positive, um, tau would be the second test turning positive, and FTG-PET or structural imaging would be the third, uh, the sequence, um, the re resulting uh, consequence of, of neurodegeneration. 
Um, it looks like we have to say that the current biomarkers that we have available um, actually fit into this scheme. Um, this may not necessarily reflect the order of pathologies. We have to be clear about that, um, but the order of sensitivities of, of the tests. Um, an important point here is the so-called PART phenomenon, uh, which has been qu quickly touched also with regard to how we should read the TAUPET scans, um, because there is a phenomenon uh, which is called or referred to PART. Um, this is primary uh, age-related uh, tauopathy. Um, th these are tau aggregates in the mesial temporal lobes that are found in quite a number um, of elderly subjects without any amyloid in their brain. So that basically turns a little bit around this, this order um, of biomarkers. And that's also the reason why, according to also the, the package insert um, of the approved tau, the tau bed tracer, we should not read these uh, findings as tau positive in the meaning of typical Alzheimer's disease. It's much discussed if this is normal, and there are also findings um, or, or studies published that this tau in the mesial temporal uh, lobes uh, also has an effect on, on episodic memory. But it seems to be required that amyloid is present um, that before tau is spreading to isocortical um, regions. Um, that's Alex, first, the, the order. Alex, Alex, can I provide a neurologist perspective on that question? Would that be okay? Go ahead. Okay. So, um, you know, so the standard of care in uh, neurology in assessing memory disorders is an MRI first or CT scan. And, you know, so the biomarkers that we have are really just um, able to detect amyloid in tau and Alzheimer's. But when I see a patient, of course, there's a broader differential diagnosis. And so we start with structural imaging because we want to exclude any structural lesions, stroke, masses, et cetera, um, you know, that would significantly change care. And also the MRI can provide information about uh, vascular injury and about different atrophy patterns uh, similar to what you saw with the different FDG patterns with MRI, different neurodegenerative diseases show different atrophy patterns. So we start with an MRI scan. Um, and then, you know, if you want to do molecular imaging, a lot depends on the clinical question. And so if AD is on your differential, you may want to order amyloid or tau if it's high in your differential. But if you're thinking more, for example, in the frontotemporal dementia spectrum, the FDG is, is much more versatile in that it will tell you information about a lot of other neurodegenerative diseases. So I think you really need to fine-tune your, um, you know, your testing uh, algorithm to the specific clinical question that you're starting to answer. You're, now, in terms of amyloid versus tau PET, amyloid PET is more sensitive to early disease, as Alex said, because of the uh, sequence of biomarker changes. That said, amyloid PET is also positive in about 25-30% of cognitively unimpaired older adults. It's much rarer to have positive tau PET in someone who is cognitively unimpaired. And if they do have positive tau PET, they're at very high risk of declining. And so tau PET has more specificity for uh, clinically relevant AD pathology. And so again, I think this is stuff that we're going to have to work out, but there may not be one, uh, one pass-fits-all order of testing, and you may really want to fine-tune the sequence of testing to the question that you're asking. Yeah. And th but, just one more thing is that th that sequence of biomarkers is Alzheimer's disease-specific, yeah. right? Other other pathologies will have their own sequence of biomarkers, some of which we can measure, some of which we can't measure. Um, hopefully, in the future, we can measure them, but move on. Thanks a lot, yes.
Um, I'm referring to what, what Gil just said. There, there has been a publication recently um, by the EANM on the order of biomarkers, depending on the specific uh, questions, that did not yet include tau, as it's not broadly available everywhere, but also included in, in a way this idea that you should look at the clinical syndrome. And of course, it starts with exclusion um, of uh, non-neurodegenerative abnormalities um, by MRI. Um, the idea then would be if you tend to think it might be Alzheimer's disease behind it, you would start with amyloid imaging in a perfect world where you have all these uh, traces available. Um, if you would tend to think it's maybe rather frontotemporal de dementia, you could go towards FDG PET as uh, it will give you some idea um, on what's going on in basically every neurodegenerative uh, disorder, as we also saw in the, in, the, in the presentations. And as soon as you would think there might be a movement disorder in, involved, um, so any movement disorder symptoms, which might also include hallucinations, um, fluctuation of symptoms, uh, you could even start with a, with a um, dopamine transporter scan to see if the, the integrity of the dopaminergic system is okay, and then switch towards FDG PET, which will give you an idea on the different uh, types of, of um, and, and, and Parkinsonian syndromes. But to follow up on the questions also a little bit, um, apart from the sequence um, of the biomarkers, the question was also how does it all refer to, um, to fluid biomarkers, CSF biomarkers, or the recently um, introduced uh, plasma biomarkers. We had a lot of discussions already um, at this conference here on that topic also, and there seems to be a, a feeling that the plasma biomarkers, as soon as they will be um, broadly available, could be tests for screening, as they will be easily available, they will be probably um, cheaper. Um, they may also be more sensitive with regard to detecting early amyloid, but they will not give us an idea on the extent of pathology. So maybe an important take-home message is the fluid biomarkers reflect dynamic processes, activity of a pathologic process, whereas the imaging tests reflect the status and the extent of pathology in the brain. And that's not the same, um, but we might use the fluid biomarkers, specifically the blood biomarkers, for screening, for selecting subject, then selected for imaging tests, and then maybe um, selected for, for therapies in that way. The correlation studies comparing the two um, have a sort of an L-type uh, correlation, so they show an early decline in the fluid um, biomarkers, which stays stable for a while, and then they show a change in the, in the imaging biomarkers, reflecting that the aggregation process, which is captured by the imaging tests, versus the, 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 uh, the uh, dynamic pathology, which is reflected by the, by the CSF and the, and the blood biomarkers. But this is also still up to more research on how we would order um, the, these tests them in the future. We believe they are complementary and not uh, providing the exact same, um, same information. Okay, any more comments from your side to the, to the fluid biomarkers maybe? Okay. Yeah. Um, what else do we have? Is there any AD biomarker ready for primary care and screening? Um, that might again refer to the, the fluid biomarkers, primary care and screening. We would certainly not do or not recommend screening by means of the PET imaging um, tests that also was uh, commented on by, by Gil in the appropriate use criteria. Um, that it would not be used for, for screening in, in subjects without, um, without any um, symptoms. Yeah, I, I agree. So um, I think the blood biomarkers will be the most accessible to primary care. I think we aren't recommending screening of the general population in the sense that if people don't have symptoms, we're not recommending testing to see if they have 
uh, AD biomarkers. At this stage, we really are recommending these tests only in symptomatic people. And if someone does have cognitive complaints and a positive blood biomarker, you know, at that stage, the primary care physician might want to refer them for more uh, assessment with a memory disorder. The other important thing, though, to remember in primary care is that if someone has cognitive complaints and their blood test is negative for Alzheimer's, it doesn't mean that they don't have some other disorder that is causing their cognitive changes. And so it's, again, very important to understand that not all cognitive disorders are Alzheimer's and the uh, blood biomarkers are looking very promising for detecting amyloid and tau, but you still need that clinical assessment, uh, you know, shameless self-promotion for the neurologist or, uh, you know, other dementia specialists uh, in order to really understand what's going on with the patient. The, the blood test or PET scan is not a substitute for that. It's complementary to that. So we are supposed to stop soon. I, I might have one last question maybe also to, to Gil again. Um, who showed this discrepancy in a, a small number of cases um, who were read positive or negative by visual read, but quantitatively were had the inverse result. I can imagine that, let's say, in subjects with atrophy, you might read them falsely negative because they would look like the typical white matter pattern. It's more hard to imagine how you would read someone falsely positive. At the same time, that's more dangerous because we would include subjects maybe into trials who are not actually amyloid positive. Um, do you have any comment on that, how that occurred, or who, who was right, actually, the, the quantitative read or the, the visual read in that, uh, in that situation? Right. Well, that's a very good question because, of course, both visual reads and quantification have potential pitfalls. So what was very nice is to see that they agreed most of the time. I think that's nice cross-validation for both. Um, I think it's an excellent question, you know, what was... Um, What were some reasons for discordance? Was the quantification wrong because there was a lot of atrophy and the senoloid value was driven down? Um, was the visual reader wrong? So we haven't yet dug into that, but that is absolutely something we plan to do is to look in depth at these. And I know actually that the manufacturers that helped support the idea of study are also interested in looking at these scans so that they can actually learn from them and even further improve their visual training programs specifically uh, by identifying some difficult cases or discordant cases on ideas and learning how to improve training uh, based on that. So we think this is going to be uh, a real goldmine for understanding uh, pet, the use of PET in the real world. And I should say that we will be making both the clinical data and the images from ideas available to the research community through the Global Alzheimer's Association Interactive Network People will be able to apply to download these scans and the clinical data that goes with them. So if there's anyone in the audience who's interested in, in digging into these uh, images, uh, that, those opportunities will be available. Very good. Very important information at the end. So again, we would like to thank the two excellent speakers. I think the audience coming here early in, in the morning and also the audience following that uh, presentation online. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash NEF 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.